My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge of the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine. Our first issue is available for pre-order now and features stories from around the world on the future of design, the realities of humanity, and adventures to truly wild places. Featuring additions from Chris Burkhard, Alex Stroll, Richard Daney, Lauren Moores, Brian Collins, and Petra Knapp, to name a few. Each iteration also features recommendations and some of the best gear, tech, and accessories out now as tested by our team. The publication will always be limited to the first run, and we're offering anyone a 15% discount if they use the code PODCAST at checkout. Today, I am joined by none other than Stefan Klaus. Stefan is the co-founder and CEO of HeimPlanet. HeimPlanet's journey already began in 2003 with the idea of a revolutionary tent concept during a trip to Portugal together with fellow co-founder Stefan Dykov, or in this episode, we refer to him effectively as Stefan II. Five years later, the two founders took up the vision again and worked together with designers and product developers on the realization. In 2010, HeimPlanet was founded, and in 2011, the first inflatable tent titled The Cave was launched, revolutionizing the tent market. And I'm going to be honest, I've been almost using the Cave XL, which is a massive iteration of the original for the past year, and it is one of the best products I have ever used. So I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and Stefan Klaus. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Stefan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Always. Um, I ask every single guest the first same question, which is, what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? It depends on the day, I would say. But um, um, usually um, it's like looking in my head, looking at the timetable, what I want to do, uh, what I want to achieve uh, during that day. And so it seems like this is kind of based on individual days, but do you ever think beyond that to think the next few days, the next months, the next years maybe, or are you very focused on what's happening right in front of you? Uh, actually, uh, when I go to bed, it's more about that I'm looking ahead um, and that I'm thinking about different scenarios, what is going to happen next week, what is going to happen in a month from now, maybe half a year from now. Um, but when I wake up in the morning, it's just about, okay, what's, what's up today? What's up in, in the next hour? Great. And, and after that kind of thought process, do you have any kind of morning routine that you walk through every single day that helps you start the day? No, not really. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not really a morning person. So usually I wake up too late. <laughs> uh, usually I'm, I'm in a bit of a rush in the morning um, and I have a coffee uh, right after I took a shower um, and then either I, I sit down in front of my computer or 
um, I'll make my way up to the office. And uh, yeah, that's that's a regular morning. Sounds great. And before we dive more into the work you're doing now, um, how would you describe the work that you do right now to your eight-year-old self? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, to an eight-year-old, um, I would say um, I can do whatever I want. Um <laughs> uh, I can I can live my dreams and I usually have a lot of fun with it. That's great. So do it. Do you do you want to kind of expand on what those dreams are and, and, and how those dreams are now versus do you remember what you what you dreamed about being when you were eight? Do you do you have any recollection of that? Ah, not really. I don't know um, if it was something that I could now precisely describe, but um, I think very early on, I got excited about um, ideas. I got uh, uh, excited about ideas and and different ways of thinking, alternative. Um, so I I got got excited about things that were different from my parents' beliefs, for example, and thinking for myself. I think that started pretty early on that I got excited about that. So, um, and I would say this is a very big part of what I'm doing now every day. Yeah. And that I used to question, question in between if that's necessarily a good thing. Um, but I came to the conclusion and yeah, basically it's one of the principles that I live after nowadays. That's fantastic. The question everything. Question everything. And and so going off that, I know some people who will be listening to this podcast are familiar with you, familiar with the company that you founded and run now. Do you for, for people that are unaware, how do you describe Heim Planet to people that have never heard of it before? I would say telling about the history a little bit um, explains a lot. So when we started, we had the idea of building uh, an inflatable tent to get rid of all poles, all rigid parts, and make the process of setting up a home to go um, as easy as possible. And out of that product idea, grew step by step an idea to build a modern and progressive outdoor brand. And that's what we're trying to be today. So, so let's let's kind of walk through that. So, what like set set the time stage around? What year was it when you first had this idea? And like, was there a certain uh, circumstance or part of your life that really kind of prompted it, or what what kind of started that? Um, okay, the the whole story is a very long story, and let's... it stretches um, across a couple of years. Okay. Um, but basically, it all started um, when my now business partner and back then really good friend, Stefan, also. Uh, Stefan and Stefan were on holidays. And <laughs> we decided to go to Portugal. Um, and we went there on a surf trip. And uh, the setup was very simple. We decided to travel with one bag, one bag only. And... 
we rented a car and we moved from from uh, beach to beach all along the the west coast the atlantic coast of portugal and we brought a tent that's where we wanted to stay and that's where we stayed most of most of the time so we had to set up the tent every every evening we had to take it down every morning and uh, because it's officially not allowed that you camp on 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 the beach yeah. uh we did anyways and um so we had to take it down really early we had to set it up really late so ideally when it's when it's getting a little dark and um, that was 2003 already and back then we were both studying we're we're in the middle of our studies and uh, it was just a fun conversation that we were having while being on vacation we we there was this one night where we set up the tent it started raining and afterwards we were lying next to each other soaked uh and we just started thinking or talking about the idea uh and the thought was what would the tent of the future look like yeah so we're 90s kids we grew up with back to the future and all these these stories so um in our opinion or in our expectation uh by 2025 there wouldn't be normal cars all cars would be flying and yeah, uh, so out of that that idea we came up with the idea of things so um, if everything changes and technology changes the way we approach things we we use things how did, would this apply to a tent and but it was not as serious it was just a fun conversation that we were having Totally. Um, and then skipping forward to 2008, um, that's when we decided we wanted to start our own business. And it was because of very personal reasons. We were both frustrated with the jobs we were having back um, uh, during that time. And uh, so we decide, decided we wanted to uh, start our own business. We wanted to be independent. We wanted to um, fulfill something that would give us some meaning that would yeah, be totally. purposeful. And you were in advertising uh, at the time, right? Like you, you did almost a 180 from, yeah. yeah. And it was, was, uh, was other Stefan, I'll call I him Stefan too, in a similar role. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say that, that I necessarily did in 180. Um, you know, the slogan, um, the, it's actually the best slogan I've ever heard from an advertising agency. And their slogan was truth well told. And that mm. was my belief system. So yeah. I was always searching for the benefit within a product yep. that you would benefit from, something that you would really appreciate and pointing that out. And so back to what I said um, as an eight-year-old, yeah. um, I was I was intrigued by advertising, just the, the um, ability to bring across complex idea um, back then in 20 seconds or 30 seconds and maybe changing the way you think about product but but, but even about problem that you might have in life I, I was intrigued by that I was fascinated by it and yes. so it really was the perfect fit for me and I really enjoyed it I loved it um but um after time it got a bit yeah the truth was 
getting lost in between a little bit. So I felt a bit that I'm I was losing my purpose, even though I liked the 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 work itself a lot. And my business partner Stefan, he was w- working for a huge corporation in Germany, mm-hmm. and he just felt like a very very small number in the big big system, and the the part that he was working in he he didn't really feel that he was having much of an of an impact i believe yeah uh it was a very traditional part of the business and he felt uh yeah he wasn't part of change he wasn't part of uh progression yeah. and i think that's what brought us together mm-hmm. um one one night where we got very drunk and decided, okay, let's do something on our own. We were both 30 at, at that time. Uh, we didn't have girlfriends. We were independent. And we decided and we came to the conclusion that if we don't do it now, we probably wouldn't, we'll never do it. So it was a perfect time. We had the, the right mindset. It was a bit the, the mindset of we, we don't have anything to lose. Even yeah. if we fail, what is the worst that can happen? You have and some fun, if, right? If we succeed, yeah. And if we succeed, it might be the greatest thing we've ever, we might ever do. So we went for it. And so around 2008, for most of the world, um, it was like a very difficult time economically, right? Um, and it's, it's, Amazing the amount of companies that came out of that span of like late 2007 to early 2009. Um, did you guys feel any of the pressure of the, you know, the economic downturn at that time? And was that was that kind of helpful in, in finding other people to help do work and get this made? I think, honestly, we never really experienced it ourselves. It was actually that I remember that um, Stefan, uh, while he was... Uh, I, I stopped working much earlier than he did. It was part of our our arrangement, part of the way we, we wanted to organize ourselves. And I remember that he was put on, it's a special term that we have in Germany, it's called Kurzarbeit. It means that you're working less, but mm. you still get paid most of your salary. Interesting. But it's a, it's a program that we have in Germany to prevent companies from laying off uh, the employees too early in a, in a time of crisis mm-hmm. so that they can afford it half I think for half of the salary is paid by the government uh, which they would have to pay anyways if you get laid off so it's it's a program to prevent that people get laid off fast Got it. That's and smart. then for companies having problems finding the right employees uh, afterwards so he was in that program program so he had to work much less than uh, usually, so it was for us actually, it was a great support because uh, he got uh, a proper salary and he had time to work on our project. So we, that was really something we, we benefited uh, of. But uh, besides that, it was in our heads, but it was not something honestly that affected us. Uh, got it. And so your alpha product, uh, the cave, right, which is your first product you guys made, created, manufactured and yeah. released. Um, what can you I, I've always been curious, um, you know, I spend a lot of time in product development, and product design. And so I'm always curious about learning other people's uh, kind of 
process through that through that cycle of of starting with a simple idea to a prototype to manufacturing to to final product. So I'm curious, like what what were the biggest problems you guys faced in the initial uh, process of turning this idea into the prototype? Actually, I think the the list would be too long to discuss it here. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's no, honestly, it was so many things. Um, but looking back on the situation that we were in, um, I think it was good in a way that we we didn't have any particular experience in that field. We yeah. were completely naive, to be honest. Yes, we just um, I approached this like I did in the job the, the the like i did approach my job um that was what i that i was um working on until then um and it was all project based and if you needed some special expertise you would find someone who has it and yeah. you would set up a team based on the requirements based on the needs so for me it was i approached it like a regular project i said like okay if there's any any problem anything that we might miss i'm sure we're going to find someone who can help us um and so that's how we started and but we realized very quickly that um when you start developing a product and you run into problems that are very fundamental um you either might not be able to afford someone who really digs into the problem and spends a lot of time trying to solve it. Um, or they lose interest. Yeah. They, 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 they don't have the passion that you have as a founder Correct. really digging that deep. And they might come to a point, and it happened to us, that people said, okay, this is not possible. Hmm. I don't see a point. I don't see a way how we could solve this. So yeah. I'm out. And that ha happened several times. And I think that's brought us to the point where we realized, okay, we can't approach this just as a project. We have to really, we have to own this. We yeah. have to be the ones in, in, in charge. We have to be not just in charge, but we have to be the, the owner of the knowledge we have to we have to learn yeah and i think that was really a turning point and nowadays we describe this as as studying all over again and that's what it felt like yeah um we started the the project we we took the decision to start the project around um i would say november december of 2008 and then in the beginning of 2009, uh, we really went to work um, and and start really the, the de developing process. And um, yeah, we we came to the we came to the, the the point where we realized if we don't we if we don't own the the knowledge, if we are not the drivers of this, yeah. um, nobody will. And um, yeah, it's it's the the key to to success. We realized, um, and yeah, it took us three years. I would say we we presented the first product in um, February two thousand eleven, mm -hmm. so almost three years. 
Um, and that was like, yeah, studying. It was new things that we learned every day. We had so many meetings that we went to where people just realized that we didn't have a clue and <laughs> some just just didn't take us serious. Yeah. And they, they were like, oh, okay, guys, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, so they, they after like 15 minutes, they said, like, maybe we should stop. It doesn't make sense wow. if we keep on going. Other people were really helpful and they, yes, they also realized that we didn't have a clue, but they, they really helped us and they sure. helped us to, to gain the knowledge. Um, but no matter um, who it was, the people who in, in the beginning didn't take us serious, a month later when we came to the second meeting, we knew our shit. We did yeah. our homework and then we could, we even, we even could, ask questions that they didn't know how to answer that's great and that was an experience that really showed us okay this is how it has to be and this yes. is how we have to attack this and this is how we we might have a chance to find a solution wow and and so in this process because obviously two and a half three years is a long time to be developing a product were, were you guys uh like aided by uh investor funds were you completely bootstrapping this yourself were you utilizing like different maybe prizes or incubators like how would you guys how are you guys funding this so it was completely bootstrapped in the That's beginning awesome. in the first couple of years um we actually bootstrapped completely until 20 19. Wow. Congrats so, on that. Yeah, that's 10 uh, the, years. The whole, yeah, the whole beginning, the whole beginning was all bootstrapped. Um, the only, um, we applied for um, uh, a funding that was giving, uh, that was, um, yeah, given away by the city of Hamburg. Hmm. Um, that if you present the idea for an innovative product. Yep. Um, that you would get a funding of 50,000 euros if you succeed. Wow. And we we got that. Um, but the the money that you receive, um, you have to, to present all the expenses that mm. you're using the money for. And none of this is for yourself. It's yeah. 100% for materials, external costs. Got so it. it was solely and only for uh, developing or building a prototype, which was a great support, and we really appreciate we really appreciate that we got that support. Yeah, it's huge. Um, but it was really it was really just for the product development, and uh, we had to yeah just see how we how we pay our rent and how we get along. That's great. Um, so after the cave came out, um, from what I understand, it was very successful, right? Like you guys got won a couple awards. You're featured in places like uh, Uncrate, which, if people are unfamiliar, is a, is a, basically a, a site and magazine that you know puts up the most interesting new products, and it has a lot of traction. Um, you guys sold out, didn't you? In your like first run of tents? Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was. Um... Yeah, it was in the beginning. It was, it was before Kickstarter. Yeah. So I believe this would have been the the perfect Kickstarter I project. Agree. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't available to us back then because you had to be a U.S. citizen mm -hmm. um, to do to start a Kickstarter. Um, so we didn't have 
a chance to do that. But what we did was we uh, set up a pre-order function hmm. um, on the website. Um, and we kind of covered the, at some point we started documenting uh, the, the the development and yes. uh, the, the the progress that we were making on the, the product development. And then um, a TV station picked up the story and they followed us around for a while. And um, so we were kind of like a, a soap opera about how to start a business and how Fantastic. to develop a product. And so we, we tried to convert that, that traction and that attention that we were getting um, into pre, pre-orders. That's fantastic. That, that worked yeah. uh, pretty well, um, but we had to, to we had to finance um, everything, and we went to a bank, and thankfully we got a got a financing, but we had to pre-finance everything, and then we just ordered five hundred pieces, and let's see if there's anybody who wants one. Yeah, and the, and there were yeah, so which is great. Um, I I think. You know, the the cave and now we'll get to the comparison in the cave and the cave XL in a little bit, but your what was the second tent you guys made? Was it the fistral or was it um the uh like what what was the next what was the next tent after the cave? Actually we built two tents right after afterwards. Okay. So when we presented the first the first product, mm-hmm. um we got a really a lot of great feedback, a lot of positive responses. Uh, but at the same time, when we went to the traditional outdoor shows uh, here in Germany, uh, we actually got a lot of, I wouldn't say necessarily hate, but yeah. it felt like it. Constructive criticism. So, people, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. It was a bit more than constructive. It was, got it. Okay. Uh, criticism. <laughs> yes. We got a lot of criticism. Uh, partly rightful, partly uh, not, I would say. It was just a lot of people doing pre-assumptions about uh, the concept. And um, actually, we took it sometimes very personal because there were some pre-assumptions that we thought about a lot to make sure that we wouldn't run into the problems uh, that people assumed that we would have. Uh, But people didn't take the time to really look into the technology that we developed. So they just said like, okay, that's never going to work. Um, anyways, but after a while, people mainly uh, considered it to be be a great product. Um, and then we got all this good feedback. But we were kind of afraid that we would be seen as like a one-hit one, one hit mm-hmm. wonder or um, just that people would see the product as a gadget rather than a tool a new alternative yeah um to the classical technology so we we decided for ourselves okay we have to back it up and we have to show that this is not one product but we are a new brand yeah and so we came up with um in 2012 we presented two new tents it was the wedge yeah that's not part of our pro- uh, program anymore um and mavericks Mm-hmm. the largest tent the massive one. yeah exactly and we also presented our first backline yeah um, just to make sure that okay this is not just about tents it's an alternative tent technology 
but we are an alternative um, outdoor brand. We we are trying to tell a different story. Yeah. And so it was a bit like that. We said, um, I always when I when when I argued internally with with my partner, I always said like, okay, with the cave and with the with the tents that we brought out, like we did it, put a dot on the map. And now with the bags, we're putting a second dot there. So we're showing a direction if you connect them. Yes. We're showing a new path. And That's that great. path was um, the foundation for our brand. And so you, you something you mentioned in that process, the wedge, um, and that was your tent that had like two separate sections with uh, kind of like a vestibule in the middle. Was that the wedge or no? No, that's uh, Nias. Yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, no, the wedge, as the name suggests, uh, it, it, it looks a bit like, yeah, it has a wedge shape. It was mm -hmm. a two-person tent with an yeah. opening to the front and a vestibule right in front of the entrance. Yep. So it has a, had a wedge shape, and um, that was a two-person tent that later on was replaced by Fistrol, the two-person mm -hmm. tent that we, that we currently uh, have in our program, because Fistrol was as spacious um it had some advantages because it has two entrances one to the left one to the right has two vestibules and um so we were seeing that people preferred the fistral over the wedge and we said like they're really close to each yeah, that's other the point of making and fistral is exactly fistral was lighter than the wedge so we said like okay uh let's skip that one let's uh let's continue just with fistral that's great. And I think a huge part of your brand, uh, you know, belief is sustainability. And I think that you guys seem to be designing products constantly to really continue this trend into sustainability. And I know it's a really important aspect for you as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, like I said, in the beginning, the idea was, or the question was, what would the tent of the future look like? Yeah. Um, but if you talk about the future, I believe we don't have an alternative to finding sustainable solutions. Um, it's And that's the belief system, actually, that we grew up in. Um, everything that we were taught was about, we're going to find solutions in the future. But somebody has to take action to make them happen. And so for us, it was obvious that if we um, do something like this, if we start a company, we have to consider finding alternatives, finding solutions for sustainability, for uh, recycling, for all sorts of being more cautious about um, the way we consume, the way we produce, um, and the way we utilize resources yeah. Um, and yeah that's what we're trying to do right right from the beginning and um, we're anything but perfect uh, but we're trying very hard so over the years now that you've been you know really making tents and selling them for 10 11 years or so how is your process of design and manufacturing and sales uh, kind of iterated over time with this kind of belief in sustainability? I think it's it's 
it hasn't changed that much, to be honest. I think uh, when we start, we start with a blank page of paper and we basically describe um, certain aspects, uh, necessities <clears throat> that we want to accomplish um, and certain aspects that we want to achieve. Yeah. And then um, we are starting. It's it's actually um, it's Stefan and me plus our design team, um, and um, it's a lot of discussions. Some are heated, some are less heated. Well, that's a great. And thing. it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of back and forth about okay, what is more important? What is what is what aspect is more important than the other? And then, um, yeah, we were taking a lot of circles. We're walking in circles. We're talking a lot back and forth um, until we believe that we that um, we find the optimal, at least from our perspective, optimal solution. Um, it's somehow different when we achieve uh, some sometimes. For example, an idea is not born out of this, like, let's call it analytical approach. Sometimes yeah. it's um, born out of uh, that we stumble across a certain um, material, for yeah. example. Um, for example, um, the, the apparel that we're doing. A lot of uh, it was inspired by the, the the material that we one once found, and we we thought, oh god, oh my god, this is this is uh, this would be great uh, to utilize and and create uh, this product out of. Yeah. Uh, but that has been the same right from the beginning, and it's always we actually worked on many products that never that we never brought out. Um, for example, we did sleeping bags. We did sleeping mats oh, um, that we that. never presented, that we never brought out, because we have one rule, and the rule is that we all have to agree that we make a difference with the product that we bring out. So we had some ideas how to improve sleeping bags, but in the end, we decided it was not differential enough. It was not. Um, different enough it was not better than what was in the market and then we decided okay why would we do it then yeah and the same with sleeping bags we came mm. up with the with the concept that as a concept it sounded great when we realized it we didn't like it um that much and we didn't see that um it would be better than what existed in the market and then we decided not to do it yeah. And that's basically what we're trying to do with all the products that we bring out, that at least we have to believe that they make a difference, that they are somehow better than what you you would find in, in the market from other brands. Yeah. Um, otherwise, there's no reason and there's no justification for us to, to actually bring it to the market. Yeah, and, and kind of the opposite of that is a question I, I always wondered myself. So I actually got my start back in high school working for REI, which is like a large outdoor retailer here in the States. Um, and 
I, you know, so I'm very familiar with, you know, MSR and Nemo and these other massive tent companies. I'm still surprised no one has tried to, I'm sure you have most of your stuff patented, but I'm still surprised not another company has tried to like replicate what you guys have done. Um, and I think that says something to like the feat of what you guys created and how special it is. I actually, there are actually a lot of, uh, products that I would say are at least inspired but, but sure. by what we did. So for example, uh, I don't know, like if you're familiar, uh, there's a big chain, they brought out um, a, a whole range of inflatable tents. Mm. Um, and I would argue, yeah, I, I you were first, tell, but I would argue that, no, no, we were first. That's, yeah, that's, that's something that I know for sure. But um, we might have been uh, a bit of an inspiration there. And if you look, for example, um, the European market um, for family tents, larger family tents. Yeah, those similar um, are inflated. I would, I would say that nowadays, I would say pretty much like 30% um, is at least inflatable nowadays. Yeah. They're much uglier though. I, I was in, I was camping in the Dolomites <laughs> over the summer and I have your, your cave XL, which is, I, I get I, I've never received more compliments on any piece of gear I've ever used in my entire life than your cave XL. I don't know if it's the the mixture of the shape and the color. For people that don't know, um Heim Planet released a tent, uh, I think it was earlier this year, right? And it was a collaboration with 66 Degrees North, which is an Icelandic um outerwear and adventure gear brand. And it was basically a larger version of the original cave designed to be a four season tent designed after these, you know, Icelandic search and rescue shelters. So it's this beautiful orange color with these kind of bright silver whitish, um, uh, support. What do you guys call What do you guys call those? Like this is support posts or support baffles or what is your technical name for your inflatable, uh, supports yep. tubes, tubes. Great. <laughs> I should have thought about that. Yeah. It's um, it's it's the idg so it's a yeah. inflatable diamond grid yeah uh it's all inspired by the geodesic structures yeah and so uh, that's the principle that we're using to ensure that um, the tents are um, as stable as possible yeah uh, especially in heavy heavy wind conditions and uh yeah but we call them like just inflatable tubes and um yeah, but I, I, yes, I experienced uh, that reaction very often. I don't know exactly what it is, but I think what fascinated us about the idea and um, the structure right from the beginning, it is something that really resonates with people. Yes. It's people get almost emotional when they see the, the product. And um, it's not that uh, people look at it and say, oh, well, that's nice. No, yeah. people get excited about they it. They do, yeah. And that's that's amazing to see. It's uh, it markets itself, yeah. It, so I I think I learned that uh, at every whether I was in camping in Colorado or in Italy or in Sweden, uh, people want to touch it. People want to ask questions. And and the best thing about it is the first question that always comes up is what if it pops? And then I show them the uh, how you guys have this brilliant system of essentially locking out separate parts of the tent so if one of them were to puncture the rest of the tent will stay inflated while you can repair uh that section that's been been damaged and then just simply reinflate it like nothing ever happened which is brilliant and i, and I think it's one of those things that you know i because I, obviously when you first get one of your tents you have to set it up for that first time right how you're going to use it whether you're going to install the 
the shell and the interior, whether you want to have the, the, you know, footprint ready to go, or maybe you attach it differently. Um, and so my roommate, who's an engineer for Apple, um, he was like asking all sorts of questions about it. And he at first was like super excited, then like super curious. And then, you know, like a good engineer was asking good questions about like when it could break. And at the end of it, he's like, yeah, this is, this is brilliant. He's like every, every little thing that he thought of, like, what about this? It's like, oh, they have that. Oh, what about that? Oh, they, they figured that out. So I think this is my moment to say like, you guys made a fantastic product. And something where when I first saw it when I was a kid and couldn't afford one, I was like, I cannot wait to own one one day, you know? Um, so just, Congrats to you and your team for that, because I think I think having a product that is thank you very much beautiful in view and beautiful in function is rare, and also beautiful in the fact that it markets itself. I'm sure you guys have found that. Like you guys probably don't have to spend much money on marketing because if one person brings them to a campsite, the next week probably a few people will buy one, right? So, yeah, it's that's actually why we believed uh, it it could work for us. Um, because, and that's going back to my, my advertising days, um, I believe that the product itself would be kind of viral and, yeah. um, yeah, that proved to be right. Um, but yeah, what, what you mentioned that there was a principle for us, um, when it comes to product design, it has to, um, not look good, um, just to look good. Um, it has to feel good because it works. It has to make sense in a way. Yeah. And I think uh, I, I I don't have a design background. So I'm, if you were self-taught, um, whatever. But for me, good design always was defined by an experience that makes you happy. Yeah. So if you have a great product, uh it just creates a sense of satisfaction yeah and a sense of it elevates something inside of you i don't know how this to describe it yeah without... it's a very very Dieter Rams, right what you're saying is i think a lot of things that he was always known for for saying um yeah it's just if if something um yeah just if things click and you can somehow anticipate what the product is supposed to do and then it does yeah and it flows naturally that's that's an amazing feeling and if you have this with the product i think that's that's the pure definition or that's the the, the essence of yeah. of good design and we uh yeah we had a lot of time and we had a lot of shows where people pointed out all these yeah. factors that you just mentioned okay what happens in the in the case of like you have one part leaks. What happens um, if uh, one thing breaks? Whatever. Yeah. Um, so we had a lot of um, feedback that helped us to get better, um, and that was in the beginning what we what we were really a bit maybe disappointed by that people did all these assumptions because exactly what what your what your friend was was saying, we overheard these conversations while while we were presenting the, the product and people were talking about the product while we were standing next to them yeah and they were doing all these assumptions and we were there and oh my god no we solved all this yeah and hey ask me a question don't yeah. want to be yes but you don't want to be rude and just jump in and say like okay sure first of all like we figured all this out yeah <laughs> and so 
it was a was a bit of an awkward situation and that really i i was severely depressed after the first show the first show that we went to i went home and i was like oh that didn't go well yeah and then the next day i remember one of the largest newspapers um in germany they picked up our product and they picked up um the show that we were showing it and they said um, an industry that defines itself over innovation lacks of innovation except yes. and then there was our tent that's awesome and that was that was the victory that i needed to overcome the bad experience i'm glad but uh yeah and and having you know, i said I'm, I'm glad about that and and having spent so much time in the outdoor industry myself it is a very cynical industry and I think that a lot of companies are just happy making the same thing over and over and over again without really changing it except the color every year, right? And that's sad. But I, I think I think actually I, I came to a bit of a different perspective on the on the industry, which actually helped me to appreciate the industry much more and um, to get a better understanding of the way a lot of people in this industry look and judge products. So um, the first wave of um, brands were founded just to solve very basic problems. Yeah. And most of the founders of these brands were actually explorers, um, adventurers themselves, and they needed gear that just didn't exist. So they came up with the gear. And very often it was gear to help them to survive in situations that you usually Couldn't. wouldn't or yeah. shouldn't survive. And they made it possible through their gear. So their perspective was very much based on survival and um, very basic principles. And so the question, does it look good? Um, and even the look was defined by um, if you are out in an, in an ice field in the middle of the mountains um, and you need help, you're happy if you're wearing an orange, bright orange jacket yeah. because you will be, will be seen. So a lot of the, the, the design aspects of these products, they were predefined by pure, the pure instinct or the pure function of surviving. Yeah. And that helped me at least to get a better understanding of the philosophy within the industry. And I always describe it as kind of luxury that we are the second wave, the second generation yeah. of um, designers or product developers um, who take all these developments that were made, all these materials, all the functional aspects that were invented over years and decades, and now they're all out there. And we yeah. can take them and we can rearrange them and we can do build new things out of them um, and ask, asking maybe a less fundamental question um, rather than asking what do I need to survive because that problem is already solved. I can yeah. ask how can I make the experience better? How can I make it easier to, uh, to, to, be, to be used? Yeah, and so that's some luxury that we have, but I can understand that some people, because when we came to the first shows, shows, uh, people also ask us, okay, why, why does it look like this? And we were like, 
have to make it look good. Yeah. And people almost were offended <laughs> by the fact that we were that we were paying attention to to these aspects. Yeah. And I I never got it. But then I, when I looked into the history, I was like, oh, that's where they come. This from. makes sense. Yeah. But it's we, we we have to understand that it's kind of like a yeah, it's kind of a luxury that we are that we are um, uh, that we're having uh, because the basic problems are solved and we can play around now. Yeah, which is a great it's a great pro problem to have, right? So, um, so so kind of collecting all these ideas and 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 before we kind of move on from talking about the company and talking more to, to talking more about you, um, what do you think is next? Like, what do you think the future is? Not not necessarily for you and your team and the products you make, but like the industry and, and as and as a whole. I think the biggest problem that uh, people are working on is actually sustainability. I would agree. Uh, because uh, actually, uh, going back to all these functional aspects, a lot of the functional aspects are made from artificial materials, are made from um, combining a lot of products or yeah. materials, which for sustainability, recycling, all the processes that are, are necessary to, to make things sustainable, uh, they are the worst nightmare. Yeah. So overall, um, that is one of the basic problems um, of the auto industry. But at the same time, I think it, its greatest advantage is that I think there is there are not many aspects or many industries where you have people being so aware of it and yeah. being so aware of of nature and the, the, the importance of nature. Yeah. So I believe um, that um, most people take it very serious. Yeah. And so I believe that this industry can be uh, an important driver to solve a lot of uh, the problems that, that we have uh, with modern consumption, with modern production, and uh, all these artificial components uh, that we're building products of, which are not necessarily bad. Yeah, I don't think using, for example, artificial materials is uh, necessarily a bad thing. Not at all. Um, it's just a question of reusing it, yeah. and not uh, um, disposing it somewhere, somewhere in nature. Or um, as long as we re reuse it, it's basically like a metal, uh, yeah. like metal, like. Uh, and they get re reused uh, for yeah. hundreds of years already. So um, as long as we find a solution uh, to reuse uh, polyester, nylon, uh, and all these materials, um, that's that's not a problem at all. Are there any particular companies that you look up to uh, in the industry? Um, I think when it comes to yeah, the commitment, um, that uh, Patagonia, for example, is a is a great example of of being committed, um, and but also using it very cleverly as a as a marketing. as a marketing yeah. uh, uh, tool as well. Um, so I think it's good and clever at the same time. Um, they sometimes get criticized for this um, that they're using these aspects, but I think. They, they have all right 
um, to use it. Yeah. Um, because if you're really committed, um, then you're making a, a difference. You're part of change. Um, so go out there because it just creates more pressure on everyone else in the industry to change as well. Yeah. Um, so I would see it as a, see it as a plus. Um, and then of course there are so many brands. Um, it, Arcteryx, um, yeah. amazing for Arcteryx is top of mind for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're they're yeah. It's like amazing. when it comes to <laughs> the the technicality of 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 products, they're just yeah, pretty much the top yeah. end of of things, and uh, they are very um, also committed. And I yeah. like brands. I like. Um, commitment in general so yeah yeah but I mean, there are many many brands and and very young also innovative innovative uh, brands out there who are trying to make a difference um it's it's i i believe it's a very exciting industry to be in it is for sure yeah and i th i think uh arcteryx when that rises up a lot um I'm, I'm actually trying to get the some of the founding team on the podcast soon but i think something that they having worked with them a bunch in the past uh, an, an ideology that you and them share is this idea that unless you can make an actual like systemic change or a massive improvement on existing product, then they won't do it. Um, and it's why they like stayed out of down garments for so long. So I think it was until like 20, 2014 or so when they actually started doing down when people were doing it for decades and they're like, well, we couldn't do it sustainably and we couldn't do it better. And, and then they took them, you know, they did figured it out and they did make the best down stuff now, you know? <laughs> So. I I have a lot of respect uh, for this kind of attitude. I think um, if if um, if we would follow this um, a lot more, then we would be more effective. Agreed. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it's too many brands do me too products, and I I'm just not a fan of it. And so I think a good example is, for example, if you look at Helinox. Yeah, Helinox came out with one of the most innovative designs uh, for a camping chair. Yeah, and there are countless copies of that design yeah. out, out in the market, and there are even well-known brands copying it without any—I don't know—shame. I would say, yeah. Um, and I have too much respect for the idea and for the people who brought it out um, to copy something like this. I think yeah. that's something you just don't do. Yeah. And um, it's a different thing that if you incorporate a good solution within your product, yeah. technical solution, that's a different thing. That's You could argue, okay, this is uh, it's a, it's a compliment. But if you go out and you just one-on-one -on -one copy a product that someone else came up with, I believe it's something you shouldn't do. And I agree. A lot of people do it, and I would never do it. And that's why, for example, we came up twice already with the limited edition, uh, where we actually did a collaboration with Helinox. Uh, and yeah, we love the product, uh, but it's all theirs. And yeah. they, they are the ones who came up with it. So let's celebrate that.
Yeah, I agree. And, and I think the idea, it's a beautiful idea of saying, if you, if there's a product you'd like to do, but someone else has it better, why don't you work with them and make your own version together that, that fits a certain niche, right? And I think that's, that's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful sentiment. So that's off to you and the team. Um, just to kind of take a, a 90 degree turn, because I do want to spend some time talking about you and and your beliefs and, and kind of your path. Uh, I'm going to start you off by asking you a, a new question. And as I said, it's a 90 degree turn. Um, is there something you believe in that most don't? Oh my God. Let me think. You have as much time as you need. I think that's a question that other people would have to answer. Um, but I would say, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I definitely have um, I wouldn't say ability, maybe it's a disability, also depends on your perspective. Um, but I like to question everything, yeah, personally. and and come up with my own solution or my own understanding of and my own perspective in a way and uh, sometimes that's very helpful yeah um but very often also it it gets you into trouble um and, but in the best uh, way so <laughs> sorry so getting you to tr in trouble in the best way though like it's not you know bad trouble not always no not always it's like you you get uh uh labeled as the 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 uh, the rebel uh you get labeled as uh the troublemaker yeah um even though you don't you don't have any bad intentions you just want to make sense of things and um i think that's uh, where I got a lot of in trouble in school uh, yeah. in all kinds of institutions because I questioned everything. Why do we do it like like this? Why does it have to be like this? Why can't we do it another way? And uh, you're always the person that needs a bit, little bit more attention yeah. than the others who are just totally. following uh, the path. Um, but there was no bad intention. And that's, that's something that I, I struggled with really in the past that I had only good intentions. I didn't want to be a troublemaker. I just wanted to understand. And I I wanted to to make sense of, of things. Yeah. And a lot of things that I that I came across, they just didn't make any sense to me. Why? Why would you do it that way? Yeah. And so yeah. Maybe that's I don't know. No, I love maybe it. Maybe it's an ability, maybe it's a disability. <laughs> uh yeah it's for others to judge i i love that and i think that that's a it's a very strong theme among other entrepreneurs and people always innovating in a new industry is this idea of questioning why you know um i think it's you know very steve jobs very elon musk very other you know people that have kind of helped shift the paradigm in different fields um now the first story you told me uh when you and uh, Stefan too, as I'm referring to him as, uh, went, went camping along the beach in Portugal. That seemed like a very pivotal 
point for not only you and your life, but also the kind of founding story of Heim Planet itself. Are there any other memorable adventures that you have that really kind of maybe not have were as impactful on the Heim Planet creation story, but were also impactful on like you becoming who you are? Um, there's just a whole bunch of experiences um, that I could point out, but this this was really a special uh, special occasion, and it the, just the way we ended up in Portugal is a story on its own. Um, but um, then, while we were in Portugal, <clears throat> Stefan and I we both fell in love with the country right away. Yeah. And I can't remember any holiday where I got so emotional about being in a new place. It really changed a lot of things. So I decided back in 2003 that I definitely wanted to live in that country, at least for some, some period of my life. And so I came back in 2005 and I studied in Portugal. And since then I, I spent the last, basically almost next year, it's going to be 20 years. I, I traveled to Portugal like at least three times a year. And it really became, um, I would say part of, of my, my personality, part of my identity. So that was a really, life-changing holiday if you yeah. know uh, but they have there have been there were many many experiences uh, especially meeting certain people um, that had a great impact and uh, very often sparked the confidence um, in me to go further push harder um, and and be confident to just even try. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but I I can't remember now one that was as impact as impactful as as that particular holiday. And and so as someone who isn't from Portugal but has spent a lot of time there, if if someone said, "Hey, I only have you know four or five days in Portugal," what are what are the things I absolutely have to do that might not be the most obvious? Do you have anything that's off? Off the top of your head for that? Um, definitely for me, it's it's the whole stretch of the Atlantic coast, down from Portugal all the way down to Sagres. Um, all the small villages there, um, the the basic Portuguese kitchen, um, and beautiful wines, uh, beautiful landscapes. Um, you you don't really need a tip because you can't really go wrong. That's great. At least from my personal perspective. Um, it has changed a lot, though. It has changed a lot. It was when I when we went there in 2003, I, I remember we had to book a hotel because there was not one single hostel in Portugal, in Lisbon, wow. in, the, in the main capital uh, back then. So we got into a three-star hotel and we paid 35 euros for a double room uh, per day. And there was 
there was some tourism, but not a lot. Yeah. If you go nowadays, it's full of people. Yeah. Yeah, you can't get a, a single bunk in a 12-bunk room in a hostel for 35 euros a night anymore. So, yeah, it's, def it's definitely changed. Um, it's just Portugal is a place that has also, at least my parents have both spoken highly about it. I have friends who've spoken highly about it. Um, I've yet to get there myself, um, but I'll actually be going later on this month. So that question was selfish, but also I think other people on the podcast listening would, <laughs> would, would, uh, would also want to know. Um but but that's that's great. Do, so in terms of the beach, do you do you have any sports or pursuits that you particularly like to spend time doing? I grew up skateboarding. That was the main thing I did when I was a kid. Um, that meant a lot to me, and that was I would say also in in many ways life changing, if not life def defining. Uh, because it's not just a sport, it's a, it's a whole culture, it's an attitude in a way um, that I learned a lot from and I believe that influenced me and still influences me until today. Yeah. Um, and when we went then back, uh, when we back then in 2003, uh, we tried surfing, uh, we horribly failed uh we both almost drowned um but uh when i came back in 2005 i i really uh, started doing it properly and uh yeah it's for me it's it's kind of the definition of the perfect sport i would say there's yeah. nothing as challenging as surfing especially if you learn when you're a little older yeah uh it's very difficult very demanding uh but at the same time just so rewarding and you're in 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 a very close encounter with nature uh sometimes in a very gentle form very often in a very brutal form and just this these contrasts is something that i'm fascinated about and um that's I think it's one of the reasons why I keep coming back and you know, I enjoy it so much. Yeah. Surfing is, is something that I did when I was younger and so many people I know do it now. It's something I want to make sure I get back into, but I think you remember the first time you stood up on a wave. Cause I remember th this moment vividly. I think I was nine or 10. Uh, and it's, I'm sure you can share like that. That feeling is, is like, you feel like you're flying. You just, just nothing else kind of matches it, you know? Um, yeah, it's for me. For me, it's especially when you surf in in bigger surf. Yeah, um, it you can be in a spot, and it's the most brutal experience you will ever ex in, encounter. And on the other hand, if you're on top of the wave, and you're gliding it with a wide shoulder, um, not necessarily a steep wave, but you, it's so gentle. Yeah, and it, it's the opposite of aggress aggression. It's just, yeah, it's magical, and to have this variety, and it's all happening or it's all possible. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's pretty pretty amazing. But uh, yeah, over over the years, uh, many things. Um, uh, I I love snowboarding as well. Um, I think uh, also nature and experiencing nature, um, there is a, is a huge aspect. And yeah, 
once you you got into gliding oh. uh, i think it's something that you're going back to um, yeah so uh i in, in skateboarding i i also liked besides the tricks just the 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 gliding aspects and yeah uh, so snowboarding was right up there right down my alley uh then of course surfing and uh yeah but i'm pretty much open to to any kind of sport uh i really like to be active that's great um so to kind of start wrapping us up here um i have a series of kind of rapid fire questions that i'm going to ask you um you can answer them in as as few or as many words as you'd like and i think that this will really kind of help round out the conversation of of learning more about you and and kind of your own beliefs um so uh first off is is there a story that your family or parents like to tell about you like maybe when you were a kid they kind of bring it up often with family or friends oh my god um there are many many uh stories i'm not sure if like most of them are not very favorable <laughs> <laughs> um, that I, I remember for example I I remember for example one one story that uh, my mom loved uh, loves to tell even though while she was uh, experiencing it I think it was one of the most horrible things she experienced it was uh, at least for her um, I went once with a couple of friends to a party and I don't know exactly how it happened but somehow we decided to shave shave our heads that night <laughs> yeah i think one guy lost the bet and then he had to shave his head and it was a mix of like oh actually that looks really good on him yeah um and feeling oh um, now he did it i want to do it too yeah i don't know uh anyways so we, we ended up shaving our heads and um the next day my mom, when she woke me up, she saw me with the shaved head and she instantly started crying when she <laughs> saw it uh, because it was uh, the baptism of uh, my cousin that day. So I had to arrive and I looked like a skin uh, arriving there. And my mom, she forced me to wear a cap in church. <laughs> and afterwards, the whole family actually said, no, oh, but it looks good on you. It's actually something you can wear. So uh, afterwards, everybody laughed about it. But in, in the morning, my mom, she just started crying. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I think uh, that's that's the one she likes to share. So yeah. you seem like someone like me where there are multiple times when I made my parents cry for doing things that I thought was cool, you know? Uh... Yeah, somehow we have, like maybe we are the guys uh, or the kind of We're people who have to learn the hard way. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. So sometimes life has to smack you in the face and then you learn. I learned best that way personally, but um if if you had a billion, let's make it a billion euros. If you had a billion euros uh that you couldn't spend on yourself, um that you could kind of put towards helping solve one problem, uh what would the problem be you're trying to solve and and how would you use that money? Okay. At the same time, why we were starting the company so starting the company for us was a very personal 
um, approach. Yeah. It was mainly to find purpose in our life and be and create happiness for us um, and um, yeah, find purpose. At the same time, there I remember very vividly we had a discussion about what were great experiences in our lives that influenced us in a in a positive way. And I remember that we talked about civil service. Yeah. Um, you might know in in Germany uh, back when I was uh, still eighteen, nineteen, uh, we had to do. Either you had to go to the army mm-hmm. for, uh, I think, nine months it was, or um, if you refused to uh, work with a weapon, and that was the definition, you had to uh, write down your your uh, reasons. Yeah. And if, if they were accepted, and if this paper was accepted, then you could uh, do civil service instead. Hmm. And I was working with... Um, older people. Uh, for for some, I went shopping. Uh, for some, I just spent some time with them. With others, I took them for a walk. Uh, all kinds of things. Some I, I had to make breakfast. Some I had to feed. La la la. Different yeah. things. And it was one of the best years of my life. Hmm. Absolutely, because um, it's one year where I spent time with people that were pretty much close to leaving life. Yeah. And uh, pretty much all of them shared um, their balance of their personal life with, with me, yeah. which was a very humbling experience because you, I realized, I realized what at least that was my interpretation what in life really matters and what is important in life yeah and so and stefan had a very similar experience and so we came up with this idea that if we would be in charge we would introduce a civil service that would be mandatory to everyone but we wouldn't do it based on uh, countries. We would do it uh, on a European level. That's cool. So, because we also believe believe that traveling is something that educates you in a way nothing else can do. Agreed. Um, and that was my also my personal experience. When you spend some time abroad, you learn a lot about a different culture. But it's always a mirror to your own culture, your own. Uh, belief system and you learn a lot about yourself and that was also one of the main ideas for for um founding our company or the foundation for our, for our brand that yeah. we wanted to encourage as much as possible and um and and live that kind of uh, spirit as much as possible but going back to your question so i would um, I can't force anybody, but I would encourage young people after they finish school to spend a year abroad and spending it with older people, learning from their experiences and 
when you finish school, it's the time when you have to kind of adjust and develop your own yep. path in life because that's when you start your own life. Agreed. And then um, having a year to reflect it with pe people who are in the end of their life, I think is a great starting point yep. to find your own path. And if you do this on an international level, you will learn a lot about um, a different culture. You will understand what you like about your own and what maybe you would change about your own culture. And I think it would help us all get a better understanding of who we are and who the others are. And it would show us that we are, yeah, uh, better off if we, we stick together and, and do something great together. I, I love that. And there's this idea of kind of recycling knowledge with, you know, someone who's at a, a point in their lives where, as you said, they're really trying to figure out what's next and build their own system learning from someone who's spent their entire life almost already and being able to kind of help feed that. But I think especially, you know, I'll, I'll, I can't talk about the European perspective, but from an American perspective, you know, I, I was always like, you're going to go to high school, you're going to go to university, and then you're going to start a job right away. Like you, they want you to keep kind of pushing into the system and building and building and building. And that never gives anyone the time to say like, maybe I don't want to do what I just spent four years studying. Maybe I want to go do something else. Maybe I want to learn about something else first. And I think that that time is so crucial and so important, uh, especially if you can do it before college and after college. Um, and we're seeing it more and more, thankfully. But I think that it's 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 protecting a lot of people from forcing themselves into high-paying jobs so they can pay off their student loans they just took out, uh, and then they end up becoming thirty-five and they have a midlife crisis because they just spent the last you know the last thirteen perfectly good years of their lives and doing something they hated, right? And that's terrible. It's no way to live, right? Yeah. No, I, it's it, it's very difficult to figure out what you want in life. It's there, and I think, like especially today, there are just so many options, and you're confronted with so much perfection in a way uh, that surrounds us, and that promises you everything, or tells you everything has to be perfect, and you have to earn a lot of money, and so on. But figuring yeah. out, like, why would you want to earn a lot of money? why what yeah. what would you buy from it and yeah uh i think it's it would be it was extremely helpful uh for myself and it's this time and when you're young you have a tendency to be arrogant yeah and that's not a bad thing it's it gives you a bit of confidence to change things and because when you're young you're smart as you are with your parents, with teachers, with everybody, because yep. you, you believe you have it all figured out. And for me personally, it was a humbling experience because um, I talked to people that I learned over the time. They were not, and this is like, it might sound weird, but that's something I really uh, learned during that process. And all these old people, they were young at some point. Yeah. And this is something we really often forget is if you meet old people, they are old versions of yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's something I realized at some point. And that was the humbling part about it that I was like, okay, let's maybe listen a bit yeah. to what they have to say. And I really, it's, I heard so many heartwarming stories and uh, eye opening 
stories from from these people and and i'm very grateful for that experience yeah it, it, it sounds like i i if i could fund it i would but i don't have a billion euros unfortunately um so is there a book that you find yourself either gifting often or re revisiting or rereading often that really matters a lot to you? Uh, I think in terms of mindset, actually that was um, Stefan and I, we read it. It was the four hour week. I think. For, yeah. Hard working by Tim Ferriss. You yeah, know that one. That's my favorite too. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book. So it's, it's, I think it's in terms of mindset that, um, and thinking business in a way, in a very principal way, and in like, it was a it was a good push. I would argue a lot of the the things that are mentioned in the book nowadays. Um. And the the examples that he's giving are very particular for yeah. uh, for what he describes and how do he describes it. But nevertheless, it's it's really it started uh, it it was a kickstart to think I could do I could start a business myself. Yeah, and for this, it's extremely valuable. Yeah, it's it's the book that actually pushed me to starting my company uh, and this podcast. And I would argue that about a third of the people I talk to in on this podcast or outside also got their start from that one book. Um, so I, it's a book that I'll tell anyone anytime. Like if I know them, uh, if they haven't read it, I'll I'll just be like, give me your address, and I send them a copy because I'm just like, it's it's I think it's so so important. Um, I've also used it as an interesting litmus test. I've given to some people. And it's especially people in their like uh, middle of their careers, it's been really hard for them to read because it forces you to ask yourself those questions. Am I happy with the time I'm spending? Is this what I should be doing? And for a lot of people, those they people, people can shut down reading that. Um, but I think it's an important book to push through, right? Um, yeah, it was definitely a, a great motivation back then. I remember, yeah, it was good. Good. Yeah, it's it's uh, I, I love that book so much. Um, so if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone and it would they would see it like if their phone would ring like a kind of like an emergency broadcast notification uh, uh, and, and to everyone's phone in a given area, where would you send it and what would the notification say? Can I send it back in time, or is it one? Is it one area, uh, one particular area that I have to pick, and one particular message? Yeah, but I never had someone actually ask if they could give it. I'm actually curious where we're going. So you could it could be any point in time. So what, what would you say? Any point in time. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah, yeah. You get because you asked, so I'll, I'll give it to you. Um. So that's a oh my god it's like i'm i'm just coming we can up come back to it if you want yeah it's fine so that i have that i have in my in my head <laughs> no, but it's like at least okay i can share with you what it what it what it started 
yeah head. please okay? yeah we can i can so it's like basically what you're saying is like um what would you do if you can have a big impact on a lot of people at the same time yes but it's just a short message so what yeah. can you share in a short message in a push notification um to share with other people but um i i can i can i can uh tell you something that i that i have in mind sometimes um when i'm in a good mood yeah and i'm listening to the perfect song in that particular situation sometimes i wish i could share the song with everyone around me so when i'm walking down the street and a song gives me a good feeling then i feel like okay i would like to share this now with everyone uh in my particular area here or abroad that area i love that i i, I feel the same that's, that's the thought yeah so but but no if, yeah if i if i could have an impact um yeah it's it's basically the same same thing i would try to to achieve that i described earlier just before that question um just for people to take their eyes open up and look a bit uh, around them and i think one thing we just have to do is like we have to talk to the people around us and we just have to stop trying to always be right yeah. about everything that we have in mind spend more time listening uh, yeah yeah just listen a bit and and realize and and maybe accept that we're not always right and we don't have it all figured out yeah um, and just yeah yeah something Shut i learned more, listen a bit more yeah something i learned from my mom and i think this has really helped me a lot was this idea that like growing up i always wanted to be right and she asked me she's like why do you always want to be right she's like sometimes it's sometimes it's great to be the dumbest person in the room you learn a lot and i kind of took that and i was like yeah that's a very good point you know um because if you always think you're the smartest you're never going to learn right um yeah going back quickly to the music thing uh do you do you play instruments yourself yeah i used to i used to what were they uh i played guitar and i played in a band when i was from i think i started around 14 until i was 19 20 yeah that's awesome what kind of music was it? Um, hardcore. Hardcore. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, I I love that. Uh, do, so does that? Does, why why did you stop playing? Um, I grew out of it in a way. So I came back to it, but back then it felt like that. In particular, that music that yeah. I was playing it uh represented um it was perfect for for that time of of my life but i felt i i needed something new i needed something else yeah and um yeah that's that's why i then moved on um and i wasn't really the the best guitar player (laughs) my my best friend back then he was a hundred times better than me and i realized that uh rather quickly yeah he's a much better guitar player and there was this there was 
a certain level that I could reach, but everything beyond that was was extremely difficult for me. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I I decided when I moved on uh, to different music and a, a different life for myself that uh, it would be all right to to keep the guitar as a as a memory, but not yeah. use it as much after that. Got it. But you said you you brought it. Are, are you bent now again playing guitar? Or are you just completely you stopped playing guitar completely? But once in a while, like if I get my hands on it, uh, I play a bit. Sure. But uh, no, yeah, but I'm not really playing actively. Okay. Um, and I'll get you out of here on this last question, which one is thing. yeah, there. Yeah, one thing. One thing. My I have my oh, the die. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to. Yeah. I have to change. It's it's fine. I can actually hear you like this. It sounds fine too. Okay, let me turn you up a little bit. Oh yeah, this actually sounds slightly better. <laughs> Believe it or not, better. Yeah, it sounds better. Okay, it's okay. Damn, it's all right. Um, so the the la I'll get you out of here on this last question, um, which is, um, I don't know if you uh, have kids now or plan to have kids in the future, but do you have any advice for your potential grandchildren's generation so your potential kids kids generation you know you know kind of keeping in mind that you spent so much time with people that have grandchildren you know on their way out like what what would your parting advice be if you were in that reverse role um take care of your your friendships um it's it's difficult to find good friends um so and it's something that when you when you grow older you don't really find good friends most of the friends that i have are from the time uh that i was a i was a kid so taking care of them and i uh i wish uh sometimes i would do it more than i than i actually do yeah, uh, but I think it's it's that's super important, and yeah, and surrounding your, yourself with good people, and once you found good people, take care of them. I love that. Anything else you want to add or plug or share before we uh, stop recording? No, I think that will be it. <laughs> Great. Uh, thank you for spending the time again. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Always. I hope you enjoyed this conversation between myself and Stefan Klaus. You can find Stefan online at st.clausss. And as always, you can find me online at Rob Auchincloss. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Goodbye.